Welcome to FRT, the IAF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Rainier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IAF. I'm here today with Jesse McWaters with MasterCard. Jesse's a Senior Vice President and Global Head of Regulatory Advocacy, where he leads global public policy strategy for digital issues and advises on emerging digital trends and how they could impact the payments industry over the medium to long term. Welcome, Jesse. Thanks so much for having me, Jess. Prior to joining MasterCard, Jesse was the Financial Innovation Lead at the World Economic Forum, where he was responsible for authoring cutting-edge research on the role of technology in financial services and convening senior public and private dialogues on the future of finance in Davos and around the world. So with Davos, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting for 2023 now afoot, uh, we're particularly excited to be speaking with Jesse today. For our listeners who may be less familiar with Davos, Davos, Switzerland is where the World Economic Forum holds its annual meeting. Delegates from many sectors converge for several days of talks and meetings to discuss urgent global issues that they're looking to address. So with that background in mind, let's start by you telling us, Jesse, a bit more about your previous role at the World Economic Forum and some of the initiatives that you worked on when you were there. And I'm particularly interested in hearing about those that might have lived on uh, to today and those that may have diverged focus since then. Absolutely. So when I joined WEF uh, in 2013, I was really fascinated about the question of whether or not financial services might be vulnerable to the same types of disruptive forces that had been impacting so many other industries over the course of the preceding decade. And I think you have to remember this was a, a very different time. The The word fintech wasn't really even in the common parlance. And we talked a lot about Silicon Valley-style disruptors and the impact that they might have on traditional banks. And from my position at the forum, I had this really privileged opportunity to be able to pull together an exceptional group of folks. Uh, we pulled in representatives, senior executives from across the financial services spectrum, lending, payments, insurance, asset management, market infrastructure. And we put them in a room alongside fintech innovators, disruptors, and the regulators who effectively were uh, in the coming years going to get asked to, to referee a lot of both the fights and the partnerships that were going to happen between those folks. It was a really incredible experience. Uh, and over the six years that I was there, we dove deep on a lot of issues, peer-to-peer lending, robo-advisors, digital ID, blockchain and crypto, zero-knowledge analytics, uh, and AI. And a lot of that has continued forward. There's now a whole division at the World Economic Forum focused on exploring the role of blockchain and crypto, and technology forms uh, a foundational piece of the discussions that the financial services folks at the forum are having on an ongoing basis. So uh, I'm really proud to have been able to be part of, of starting that dialogue and continue to follow closely the work that they're doing. Certainly an exciting uh, stint at, at the forum. So if you were to put all of this in context of your role today at MasterCard, how did these issues and topics influence where you're engaging currently? So my role at MasterCard is to make sure that we have a seat at the table and hopefully some smart things to say as regulatory principles and standards get set for the next generation of financial services. 
Now, what that means in practice is that my team and I have been spending a ton of time working with central bankers, policymakers, and the Basel institutions as they think through the role that central bank digital currencies will play in the economy, as they explore how new innovations like crypto and DeFi should be regulated, and as they think about how transformational improvements might get to be achieved in cross-border payments. And we're also spending time looking even further out, looking at things that might be coming onto the regulatory agenda in the years to come, thinking about how MasterCard can play an important and a constructive role in defining the regulatory frameworks for everything from quantum computing to zero-knowledge proofs and homomorphic encryption. And so it's a pretty broad and a pretty fun remit and really lets us think about what the future should look like and how to make sure that the regulatory principles and guardrails that get built around that help us have a, a safe, a secure, and an innovative financial ecosystem. So the theme of WEF's annual meeting this year is cooperation in a fragmented world. And WEF goes on to say, the world today is at a critical inflection point. The sheer number of ongoing crises calls for bold collective action. So I'm thinking about those last three words, bold collective action. Where do you see or how do you see WEF making that call to action? What ex explicitly do you imagine that means to them in this context? Obviously, looking at this year in Davos is the first winter that the annual meeting has returned to Davos since COVID-19, since the outbreak after 2020 and shifted, you know, from, from it being in May last year. So I know there's a lot of discussion about just the sheer volume of people that are expected to return to WEF this year and be back where it, it typically takes place. So how do you see the bold collective action playing out there? So I think the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos is a really special time. It's a unique opportunity for senior decision makers of all stripes, CEOs, central bankers, policymakers, leaders of NGOs, to come together and to have frank discussions about the challenges that we face. And I think that the programming team at WEF has always had an incredible knack for capturing the challenge that we face at the moment. What's that underlying problem from which so many of the other problems that we're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis is, uh, is emanating? And I think that in this case, the core question that we face is whether the world can align on a vision of how to move forward together about the economic, social, and geopolitical challenges facing us, or if nation states are going to instead decide that they're better going at it alone. Now, it probably won't surprise you to find that as someone who works at a global payment network and who used to work at the World Economic Forum, I really believe that public and private global organizations help to make us stronger, they help to make us safer and more prosperous. And I think that's something that's really actually been borne out throughout the pandemic. When you think about the way that nation states and global businesses were able to work together to try and buffet some of the, the worst impacts uh, of the epidemic. But unfortunately, it feels like when we look around the world, we see a lot of things moving in the opposite direction. Multilateral trade talks continue to struggle to make progress. Standard setting efforts that are foundational to establishing 
interoperability across digital technologies are becoming increasingly polarized. And data localization efforts are really accelerating in ways that are creating barriers to free-flowing uh, digital commerce. And so I certainly have my uh, fingers crossed that as the uh, the policymakers and the business leaders and the NGO leaders get together in Davos, that they'll be able to identify pathways to help convince nation states that we are strongest when we move together rather than we try and move on our own. So with that kind of background, uh, what topics do you see dominating the annual meeting this year? And of course, considering the impact of the background of geopolitics against, again, the backdrop of Russia's war on Ukraine and potential risk of global recession. Davos really has something for everyone. I know that many of my colleagues from MasterCard are going to be participating in some very important discussions about how to accelerate progress around financial inclusion and how to move forward in achieving some of the really ambitious ESG goals that have been laid out over the last few years. For my part, I have no doubt that there are also going to be some very important discussions about the evolving macroeconomic environment. Bankers and central bankers getting together to discuss whether or not paths to soft landing are still viable, and the evolution of the rate environment, as well as how the evolving geopolitical conflicts around the world could impact the macroeconomic scenarios that we see over the next 12 to 18 months. And then even closer to my core area of interest, I expect that there is going to be a lot of discussion about the intersection of technology and regulation, both narrowly with a lot of discussion, I'm sure, on crypto, but also more broadly with, I think, a lot of folks debating what the right balance is between enabling innovation and ensuring safety, security, stability, and consumer protection. So that really gets to the next question I was going to ask you is where you see the the digital issues emerging here specifically. And clearly as someone charged with identifying and advocating with respect to digital finance issues, where you would be focusing your engagement at Davos this year and and MasterCards in general. But it sounds like that's a big slate of of items to, to address. I think that as we look forward to 2023 and beyond, there are four issues that are of particular interest to me that I think we're going to see uh, in the sort of global policy dialogues. We are definitely going to see increased urgency on moving forward regulation of crypto asset ecosystems. I think we're going to see what I'll call a, a shifting cadence of work on CBDCs with some projects accelerating and some perhaps being uh, put to the side. I think we're going to see a refocused G20 cross-border payments roadmap that looks to continue to move forward on its ambitious objectives while rationalizing and focusing on the areas that have the most potential to move that agenda forward. And then finally, I think we're going to see a lot of discussions navigating digital sovereignty, really asking ourselves how in a world in which nation states are looking to increasingly differentiate their treatment uh, of digital regulation, and in some cases, limit the movement of data across borders with data localization mandates. How do we navigate that in a way that reconciles the important goals of safety, security, and privacy that is motivating that without having undue damage to uh, you know, really the, the enormous potential of digital commerce? 
So looking to CBDCs, as, as you raised, some projects may advance in a particular way, others may go to the side or, or change, I, I think you referred to. Looking at CBDCs in 2023, thinking wholesale CBDCs versus retail CBDCs, very different propositions, very different policy objectives and implications at play, certainly at least on the retail side. Many eyes are on the ECB as it looks to a potential fall decision about whether to pursue or continue to pursue a digital euro. Talk to me about about that, about the wholesale versus retail. Some of your thoughts on that. How are you thinking about central bank actions there? So I I couldn't agree with you more that I think uh, CBDC is almost what Marvin Minsky would call a a suitcase word. And there's a lot of different ideas and a lot of different projects that get captured in that singular uh, abbreviation. I think you're right to call out the differentiation between wholesale and retail. I think they're looking to achieve wildly different things. But even within wholesale, you see really exciting work being done in the capital market space. Not my area of of current expertise, but there seems to be some opportunities to really potentially improve efficiency of security settlement. You're seeing exciting work being done on potentially linking on a cross-border basis wholesale CBDCs. Uh, And then of particular interest for me, wholesale CBDCs can potentially be foundational to the creation of new tokenized deposit uh, systems. So that is to say, taking the legal form of deposits that exists at banks today is the primary mechanism for the transmission of payments and finding ways of giving it the effectively the, the next generation capabilities like programmability and uh, an instantaneous bearer like settlement. I think that's a really interesting set of ideas. Uh, and for a whole bunch of reasons, it's best pursued in tandem with a wholesale CBDC effort. When we think about the retail side, I think that there is just an enormous number of different motivations that are driving countries to explore retail CBDCs uh, that ultimately means that they're pursuing different goals. Now, building any payment system, and particularly a retail system, is no easy feat. Uh, MasterCard's own experience over more than 50 years in this space has taught us that it's absolutely essential in order to be successful, to be focused on what you want to achieve uh, and how you can build an ecosystem that is secure, sustainable, and continuously improving. Uh, And that's why we're working with central banks around the world to support their testing and the development efforts, but also to support their evaluation of whether a CBDC is the right tool for the job. And I think that over the next year, we're going to see some countries really realize that a CBDC is exactly what they've been looking for to achieve a a particular goal that exists in their market. And I suspect certainly seems like uh, all signs point to that being the case in the ECB. I think we may well see other countries who, after having done a thorough investigation of a CBDC, ultimately conclude that it wouldn't be additive to their existing retail payments market, or that there are other places where they want to make investments or encourage innovation in order to achieve their goals. And honestly, I think that those are are, are both um, potentially promising outcomes for uh, the ongoing modernization of retail payments. I think one thing that hasn't been discussed quite as much as we focused on design and, and whether to proceed forward and questions of financial stability, which certainly are all still 
extremely valid and important questions for which we we don't yet have complete answers by a long shot. But another topic or, or way to look at the CBDC discussion is think from a, a more global economic potential impact to flows of funds or dollarization of economies or other kind of macro level impacts that are come as a consequence of one jurisdiction pursuing a CBDC or another jurisdiction pursuing a CBDC and which one is it and how is it designed? Things that kind of the step two after design and financial stability that we haven't gotten to, but that certainly impact financial stability on a, on a larger macro level outside of the questions of you know potential runs on banks or the financial system, a, a bigger level item. Do you have any any thoughts uh, at the larger macro level for listeners? I think there are important questions that are going to be raised by the development of CBDCs you know, with respect to the evolution of the global monetary and financial system. But I think that a lot of those are going to be fundamentally about the construction of interlinking platforms, uh, such as the Bank of International Settlements, uh, Enbridge and Dunbar programs, that are really at some degree separate infrastructure that looks to combine and connect, uh, in some cases, uh, CBDC projects, and in some cases, existing uh, instant payment infrastructure. I think, though, that it's really important for people not to invent problems, though, that perhaps don't exist. Uh, and I think that part of this comes from uh, sort of a mental shorthand that people sometimes use, thinking about CBDCs as a form of, of digital cash. And when they think about CBDCs that way, they start to imagine that in the same way that cash can kind of flow as a bearer instrument across borders, that CBDCs will necessarily be able to do so as well. And I frequently hear people talking about like, oh, you know, might the ECNY in China be a path to renminbi internationalization? And I always say, look, it's clear that renminbi internationalization is on the agenda for China and the PBOC. And it's clear when you think about things like their development of a fundamentally a competitor to SWIFT, uh, some of the arrangements that they've made uh, along the, uh, the Belt and Road, that they're looking at different ways of pursuing that. But that's not really what the ECNY is for. The ECNY is a retail payment system that people would uh, use to, you know, pay for goods and services, you know, pay to go to the movies uh, in Beijing. It's fundamentally not designed to serve as a, an international mechanism uh, of trade settlement. And it's not clear at all that it would be a more desirable means of international trade settlement if it were. And so I think we need to avoid making uh, sort of too many shortcuts in presuming that we know the structure, the operational mechanisms, and the governance systems of CBDCs before that they're built, and instead think about the goals that we want to achieve, whether that be in terms of the efficiency of our security settlement system, the efficiency of retail payments, or the efficiency of cross-border payments, and then think back from that what the principles are that should govern the development of CBDCs, something we've already seen the G7 uh, and the BIS do extensive work on. So turning from the, the public side, the central bank side, back to the private side explicitly of a similar area, um, in the wake of the FTX bankruptcy and other failures in the crypto market in the last six to nine months, say, how are you 
thinking about the space, stable coins versus uh, unbacked crypto assets and, and other activity? What what would you focus on there? So if you've been reading the speeches that central bankers and regulators have been making over the last few months, I think it's clear that for some portion of them, 2022 confirmed all of their worst fears about crypto. And that means that anyone who believes that there is a value to be found building on permissionless crypto ecosystems is going to need to work extremely hard to demonstrate the value of those technologies, really being able to show how they create new, more efficient, and or more fundamentally innovative pathways for the flow of funds or for the uh, management of experiences or for the sale of goods and services. I think that we are going to see over the next year increased enforcement of existing rules, such as, for example, the FATF guidance uh, on AML. I think we are going to see tighter restrictions on virtual asset service providers or VASPs. In particular, a crackdown on any activities that start to look like those VASPs are engaged in some sort of uh, shadow banking. And I think we're going to see an acceleration of regulatory efforts around things like stablecoins, DeFi, NFTs, and more. My hope is that amid all of that effort to run towards regulation, we're also going to see increased cross-border regulatory coordination Thinking about, for example, what home host regulatory uh, relationships would look like for the supervision of systemically important stablecoins, or thinking about what the resolution processes and practices and potentially the ring fencing requirements might be for a systemically important global stablecoin. That's going to be a challenging environment for lots of folks. But personally, I'm very optimistic. I think that a greater focus on demonstrating fundamental and non-speculative value in the use cases that are actually getting explored around crypto is going to be good for the health of that ecosystem overall. And I think that a focus on leveling the playing field between TradFi and crypto, making sure that everyone is subject to a similar risk-based regulatory requirements is ultimately going to serve the interests of the consumer, the economy, and society at large. So turning to another topic that you brought up in cross-border payments then, in the G20's roadmap explicitly on on cross-border payments, what do you see is next on the agenda? I know that the FSB and CPMI have been doing a lot of great work over the last year to advance the roadmap and uh, more recently prioritize some of the uh, many building blocks and objectives and increasingly look to hopefully this year work additionally with the private sector so that you have the public sector and the private sector, you know, working closely more hand in hand on uh, areas where progress could be made here. So what do you think is, is next on the agenda there for advancement or what you'd like to see? I think that anyone who believes that there doesn't need to be change in cross-border payments probably hasn't tried to send a cross-border payment. I think that the goals of the G20 cross-border payment roadmap are incredibly important. We need to work together, public sector and private sector, across borders, an international collaborative call to action, if you will, in order to find a way to make cross-border payments more efficient and faster. 
These are incredibly important goals. And I think what we've seen over the last year is the institutions like the FSB and the CPMI who are responsible for advancing uh, the goals laid out by the G20 uh, have really focused on narrowing down to a set of goals and a set of projects that they can pursue in conjunction with the private sector to really try and move the needle over the next three or four years on the speed, transparency, uh, and efficiency of cross-border payments. There are partic- there are a few areas there that I'm particularly interested in. One of them is finding ways to achieve regulatory and operational harmonization. There is a need to find a way to improve the movement of data and the alignment of data standards and the alignment of regulatory standards in ways that help us to improve the rate of straight through processing, improving the speed and reducing the cost of cross-border payments. That's not a simple undertaking. Essentially, the the rules, the standards, the practices that have been developed within individual countries are often different, uh, and there are often reasons for that, legal, historical, different structures of the banking system. And so it's not going to be a simple path to find a way uh, of achieving that alignment, but it's an important area to pursue uh, and one that uh, that I think is really important. The second area that we're seeing a lot of focus on is the opportunity of interlinking payment systems. Uh, and as an operator of account-to-account real-time payment systems in a number of jurisdictions around the world, this is something that we at MasterCard have been thinking about for a long time. We can make payments almost instantaneously at extraordinarily low cost in many jurisdictions using these real-time payment systems. How can we build the connective tissue, the governance frameworks, the liquidity provisioning, and the FX facilities necessary to create bridges between those systems, effectively making it as easy to move money internationally as it is domestically? And then the last thing that I'm hoping that we'll see the the G20 roadmap focus on is cross-border data frameworks. We see a lot of progress being made on alignment, for example, of, of messaging, API and AML, for example, regulations in and around cross-border payments. Just maybe not moving forward quite fast enough, uh, but we are moving forward in those areas. The one area with respect to cross-border payments where I think we're moving in exactly the wrong direction is the establishment of data localization frameworks that really add complexity, cost, and time to the transmission of cross-border payments, particularly when they aren't calibrated in a way to facilitate the right types of cross-border movement uh, of data. And so I'm hoping that we'll see the FSB and others really prioritize finding ways of engaging with countries as they develop and evolve their cross-border localization frameworks in ways that help them to reconcile the privacy and security objectives of those frameworks with the need to have cross-border movements of data in order to support the efficient cross-border movement of funds. Uh, And so there's a lot there, an enormous amount of complexity, but I think that the, the G20 roadmap today is by far the best mechanism that we have in place to really convene all the right parties uh, and hopefully start to make genuine progress on the speed uh, and efficiency of cross-border payments. 
Well, we certainly look forward to working on achieving those goals laid out by the roadmap um, in the coming year with public-private cooperation as those goals are absolutely worthy of proceeding. Um, So we've talked on uh, a number of different issues, central bank digital currencies, privately issued digital assets, be they stable coins or uh, unbacked crypto assets. We hit on the G20's payments roadmap. I know you dove into a, a bunch of data localization issues, which I agree are incredibly concerning and just the continued march towards fragmentation from a data management and, and movement of data standpoint is really detrimental, not just to the financial industry, but to the global economy overall. And I, I hope one day for that to turn around. In the meantime, um, you know, look for ways to execute strategic economic cooperation around digital objectives and um, dynamics uh, where we can make progress perhaps between particular jurisdictions, even if we can't kind of move the whole world in, in one direction. We didn't talk about AI or machine learning in this particular um, discussion yet. Is is that or any other issues that are top of mind that you want to bring up kind of before we wrap up today? I, certainly, I think artificial intelligence is really important. I think we're seeing efforts around the world to think about how to harness that technology while ensuring that it's a force for good, um, ensuring that in particular, uh, as we think about it, that it's uh, it doesn't inadvertently become a, a path to financial exclusion. I certainly know from my time at the World Economic Forum that resolving those issues isn't a simple one, but I think that we've seen a lot of progress around the world establishing strong principles for what AI should and shouldn't be used to do, the types of outcomes that we think it should be able to deliver on. And uh, and ultimately, from there, it's a question of figuring out how to effectively uh, execute on that. And I think that's something that we've seen there be a significant amount of progress on. Stepping back, I think the really big question, uh, and, I, and I again have to agree here with the folks uh, at the World Economic Forum and the theme they've selected for this year, it's finding ways that we can work together. I think that it is incredibly tempting to believe that you can build a wall, that you can find a way of being self-sustainable and never having to experience the vulnerability of relying on someone else. And I think there's reasons to want to do that. We we know that uh, third parties have interests that are different from our own. We want to protect our interests. But ultimately, I believe that we are stronger when we find ways of working together uh, while being thoughtful of the types of resilience that we need to have. And so that's why I think that these global dialogues, whether it's the ones happening in Davos or the ones happening in Basel, that seek to reconcile competing interests, identify shared principles, and establish, in my case, regulatory frameworks that help accelerate the right types of innovation while protecting individuals and economies at large is a really important undertaking. And it's one that we can't shrink away from, even when it's extraordinarily hard. Great words to end today on. Uh, Thank you very much, Jesse, for being with us today and for sharing your views on a range of topics, including the WEF agenda this year at Davos, back in Davos for the winter. Thank you very much to listeners for tuning in to this episode of FRT. We look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the IIF website as well at IIF.com. 